hello and welcome to episode 82 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Ryan Divish. Ryan covers the Mariners for the Seattle Times and co-hosts the Extra Innings Podcast. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Ryan Divish. Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Not a problem. Well, Ryan, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. That's a good question. Um... Well, I played baseball in college at a small school in North Dakota, NAIA school. Um, growing up in Montana, in a small town in Montana, uh, the, the large town Haver, uh, which is way up by the Canadian border, um, you know, baseball, was, it was big, uh, probably not as big as football and the other sports, but, you know, you played it there. We don't have high school baseball. You have Legion. Uh, there isn't select baseball or anything like that. So you, you played Legion, and you know, I had some opportunities to kind of go and play and and went and played for a few years, um, got a teaching degree, realized I didn't want to be a teacher. Uh, didn't really like kids very much, which is kind of odd. Uh, and then, um, I, my parents, uh, helped me go back to journalism school after I, I got done, uh, with my teaching degree and with my baseball eligibility. And so I went to, went to journalism school and, and just kind of worked my way up. Um, from, uh, I was, small papers in montana and idaho i i had done my internship in college actually at the tacoma news tribune uh and in 2000 and i covered a little bit of of the mariners back then and a lot of the tacoma rainiers and then they brought me back as a general assignment kind of sports reporter and then eventually they were grooming me to be a baseball guy and so i took became a mariners beat writer and then moved up to the seattle times and you know i I thought for a while when I was doing that that I only wanted to do cover like college. I love college basketball uh, as well. And I thought I'd really like to cover college basketball and college football. But the more I, I got around baseball and just kind of the rhythm of it, and, you know, it just really fit me. And now I can't even imagine covering anything else. Growing up in Montana, you're obviously in a region that doesn't have a professional team. What was the team that was broadcast to you? Yeah, that's that's right. So like Turner, Montana, which is just uh, east of Haver, uh, is that the equidistant point from the farthest point from a professional team. Obviously, uh, as a kid, they had the the all my friends were Cubs and Braves fans pretty much as kids. Um, they were uh, that's what that was what was on. I remember the 82 Braves with like Rafael Ramirez and Dale Murphy and all those guys. And I remember the Cubs and and, because we had WGN and TBS and they would show the game. So that was the baseball you got other than the Saturday baseball on on, uh, NBC. But by the end, um, my parents had, I had relatives that lived in Minneapolis. So uh, my first professional games were twins games. I think the first 13 or 14 professional baseball games were twins games. Uh, And so I really liked um, Kirby Puckett. Uh, and I really didn't have a favorite team. Like I, you know, I just kind of liked all the teams. Uh, I had an uh, aunt that lived in L.A. and she used to send me autographs of, of Dodgers players. And then, you know, my dad kind of liked the Yankees. So being the type of kid I was, I automatically liked the Red Sox just because he liked the Yankees. Uh, and then, you know, so I followed a bunch of different teams. But my favorite player was always Kirby Puckett um, just because I'm not real tall. And, and that's the first guy I ever remember seeing. Uh, I think that was one of my, you know, my ba- favorite baseball memories are probably of Kirby Puckett. Who was your aunt sending you autographs of and how was she getting them? So she was an autograph collector. And so... 
she she would collect she had like you know was baseballs and everything else but she sent me i have a couple autograph pictures i have a a drysdale autograph picture uh duke snyder autograph picture tommy lasorda she would she would go to some of the spring training things stuff like that and so she would kind of go through and got me a few of those um what else did she sent me uh i think i have a steve garvey baseball somewhere as well that she she had given me as well Let's shift focus to the Mariners a little bit. I guess we have to start with them losing Otani. How much of their offseason plans do you think were messed up by that decision? Do you think they were banking on Otani big time? Yeah, um, we were joking. Uh, I remember it was right before the winter meetings, and and we kind of joked with some of the guys that Jerry Depoto was, you know, in the corner in the fetal position, rocking back and forth with tears in his eyes. because you know he didn't get Ota- not only did he not get Otani, uh, but that he went to somewhere in the division. I mean, they, they you know, with his podcast that he has, uh, uh, the Wheelhouse Jerry Depoto's podcast, which is like the bane of my existence because it's every week you got to make sure you listen, and he usually drops a few little hints of news on there. Uh, he made it clear about how much they wanted him. Uh, and how much they thought felt like he could be a part of their organization and really help shift um, the organization in terms of you've got some older players now he could represent kind of the young the young future uh, and so Depoto you know he made it very clear and then in talking with people within the organization how hard they worked on it they had several presentations uh, videos kind of a small movie that they'd made up everything that they could possibly do to make Otani feel comfortable with their organization, he, they did. And in the end, maybe that worked against him. I think, you know, in talking with uh, some of the Japanese media, you know, we, I'm pretty familiar with a lot of them because of having Iwakuma and Aoki and some of the other Japanese players here, and even Ichiro. The Japanese media kind of said that maybe that might have worked against the Mariners, that, that he was, that Depoto was too public and too outgoing about uh, wanting Otani because so much of that was secretive uh, that maybe it made him feel uncomfortable. But I think in the end, uh, I think Otani wanted to go somewhere where there hadn't been a Japanese player, kind of like, you know, a star. I don't think he wanted to sit there and be compared to Ichiro all the time or even Iwakuma. I think he wanted to go somewhere where, he, you know, he was kind of a trailblazer in that regard. And I think going to Anaheim fit. And he probably, you know, if I'm, if I'm, uh, Billy Epler, I'm I'm taking him to Huntington Beach and Newport Beach and saying, hey, check this out. This is where you could live at when you went to the, when you aren't at the ballpark. Yeah, well, they didn't get Otani, but they did land D. Gordon in a trade from the Marlins, so that's very exciting. Not quite as exciting as Otani, but they did get themselves a second baseman who they plan to move to center field. What do they see in Gordon long term? It would seem to make sense maybe move Cano to first and uh, put Cano- at Gordon at second, but they seem determined to make Gordon an outfielder. Do you think that'll work out for him? In talking with D, he's very committed to it. I, I think D values defense. Uh, you know, he's moved around a lot in his career. It's, it's crazy that he was a shortstop and then they asked him to become a second baseman. And, you know, he wasn't exactly thrilled about that. And he turned himself into a, a gold glove, gold glove level second baseman. Now he's, he's, he stated that he wants to become a gold glove level center fielder. I mean, if anybody's athletic and, and fast enough to do that, I think D. Gordon would be able to do it. Um, the Mariners believe that that will be something that you know he he should adapt to really quickly. Uh, and, you know they have decent defensive outfielders with Ben Gamble in left field and Mitch Haniger in right field. They feel like it won't um, he D won't be asked to do so much in the outfield, just kind of be there and play. 
Uh, and then, you know, be the spark plug at the top of their lineup. If, if you look at the top of their lineup, now you have D. Gordon and Gene Segura hitting back-to-back, one and two. That's a nice little tandem to have. But I, I'm very curious to see how it works. You know, you've obviously seen infielders convert back and forth. Uh, Alex Gordon went to left field, you know, early in his career. But D's 30 years old, so this is a little different. But the Mariners think that this is something they can do. And, and they're not going to experiment with him just doing center field and second base this year. They're going to leave him in center field all year. But I, I think there is a scenario someday down the road where you move Robinson Cano to first base and D Gordon to second base, but they won't do that this year because I think it's something that they have to have Cano sign off on as well. What are the Mariners expecting from Felix Hernandez at this point? He's coming off two injury plague years in a row. When he's been healthy and on the mound, his velocity has been down and he has not been as effective, obviously, as he once was. What are their plans for him? I certainly don't think the plan is for him to be the, the King Felix of three or four years ago. Um, you know, he's just not that guy. There's so many innings and so many pitches on that right arm that we're starting to see kind of just, you know, the wear and tear take effect. I mean, I think they just want him to be healthy. If they can get him to make 30 starts, I think they feel like that's, that's okay. That they'll take that, that even though Felix has had massive command issues the last few years, yes, the velocity has gone down. But the command of his fastball, of his changeup, has been spotty. Um, he's had mechanical breakdowns. Uh, they they feel like all of that is is an issue. But the biggest issue is just him not being on the field. That he he's still a, a above replacement level pitcher if he's able to be healthy and make the thirty starts. So that's what they've asked last year. They they were really kind of critical of him and his off-season work habits and things like that. Well, you know, he, he got a trainer, and he did all these workouts, and it was, you know, they post him on Instagram, and he came into camp looking pretty good. He looked more muscular than he'd ever looked before, and the Mariners felt that that actually worked against him, that uh, he became too tight across the upper body, and that may have led to some of the shoulder issues that he had. Uh, he was on the DL twice last year with um, bursitis in his shoulder, and they felt like he had just lost some flexibility from kind of that lifting, so in talking with Felix at the end of the season, he he had said, look, I'm going to get more flexible again, that you know he was going to try and incorporate yoga, go back to some of the workouts he used three or four years ago that had trimmed him up a little bit. He got a little heavy last year, too, because he couldn't work out as much. So the Mariners hope that he's going to come in a little trimmer, more flexible, and, and they feel like if he has that core stability that maybe his mechanics will come back a little bit, that he can repeat them a little more. Uh, and then just be a guy that takes it 30 times. I mean, I don't think that they believe they're going to get, you know, 20 wins and in the sub three ERA. But you know, given their rotation, if 30 starts from Felix Hernandez is going to be better than what they got last year. I mean, they used 17 different starting pitchers last year, uh, and had at one point or another or two different times four of their five projected starters for the rotation on the disabled list at once. Yeah, and I wonder if Felix is a guy we've seen how starters are used. It's changed so much over the last five years, and it's just just radically changing even more, where the time to the order penalty is real. And I wonder if they use Felix in a way that the Yankees use Sabathia now, where it's two times to the order tops, and then he's out of the game. Do you think Felix would be comfortable being a five or six inning guy? Uh, he wouldn't be comfortable with it, but that's what they may have to do. Now, what they may go... We, we've kind of discussed it with Jerry DePoto, but they may go with like a five and a half man rotation as well because of James Paxton's injury history, uh, Felix's injury history, uh, kind of the wear and tear on Mike Leake. They, they'd want to get those guys the extra days off 
So trying to get them that that uh, fifth day off instead of you know going every five days and, and skipping starts because of the off days and stuff, they'll try and extend that out. So they could use a, a long reliever as kind of that half starter as well. They're going to carry eight relievers in the bullpen I, is kind of what they're projected. But yeah, I, I just it's it's weird. Felix is very proud. I mean, that, the whole mantra of King Felix is something he still believes in. But I think he's also under the realization that things aren't as simple. I also think in talking with some scouts and some opposing players, teams figured him out. They figured out that he doesn't throw the fastball for strikes very consistently, that he was afraid to throw the fastball up in the zone or inside because it was getting hit hard and he knew he couldn't control it on the edges. And then you know the, the changeup, which is so devastating, it had all that downward movement. What they did is just anything that looked like it was going to be low in the strike zone coming out of its hand, whether it was like a, you know, like a low strike, uh, they just wouldn't go. They wouldn't swing at it because they knew it would never stay there. It was it was going to be sinking out of the zone because he threw his two seamer a lot and he threw that changeup a lot. And so they just what most auto mark called is they looked him up in the zone and he couldn't adjust because he didn't have the command with his with his pitches to adjust to that. But if he can do that, you know, he's got a he's got a fastball that's, you know, ninety one to ninety two. The sinkers in the in nineties, the changeup is better when he doesn't throw it as hard. And he's still got a curveball inside. He's got an assortment of pitches. He's just got to command them. You know, it's not a, you know, I, he'll never be uh, the, as dominant as before. But like, like with Sabathia, the one thing that he does do when he's right is command it to each side of the plate uh, and get kind of guys off balance. If Felix can figure out that kind of command, he can be effective. We're going to do some Hall of Fame talk a little later. But do you think if Felix retired today, he's a Hall of Famer? <sighs> It'd be hard to see it. Um, he had that kind of stretch of about four or five years, and there there are still some voters that that look at the win total. He doesn't have the wins. Um, you know, I guess you'd have to look at the war. I mean, I a lot of times I just I make all Hall of Fame comparisons. I wait till Jay Jeff he puts out all of his his Jaws stuff and kind of looks at it. But I think he's borderline. Um, obviously, the pitching win doesn't matter. To most people, or the, to kind of the more to the younger set of writers and voters, but there are some voters that still believe that that's as a big deal, and he just doesn't have the win total. Yeah, and and seeing Johan, who's going to fall off the ballot this year, uh, he's going to get way less than five percent. He may not even crack two percent. It's hard to imagine Felix would get in right now either. Exactly, and Felix doesn't have the uh, the kind of the hardware either. I mean, he's got the all star things. You know, if he if he wins the um, the Cy Young over Kluber a few years ago, which I think he deserved. I know you know there was a lot of arguments back and forth. I thought Felix was more deserving, and maybe I'm a biased a little bit because I have to see him all the time. I just thought he was better that year. You know, if you have a couple Cy Young awards in your pocket, he didn't have any postseason games ever to kind of you know pull the shilling on he just doesn't have the the body of work i think to to push him to that next level this is uh this could be a a transition year for the mariners this is the last year of nelson cruz who's been been great for them they're in a position where look they're coming in a division now where the angels made themselves significantly better this offseason the astros obviously run the world series this year we thought earlier today they had landed garrett cole that's apparently not true but they remain in discussions there when i look at the american league the indians are still very good the yankees got better the red sox are still very good i don't know if the mariners are a playoff team again do you think they start to sell off their assets here yeah, you're, you're right in that regard that 
their Mariners are in a different place. Their division is significantly more difficult. If you look at the Angels' day-to-day lineup, it's it's much better. I don't know about the Angels' pitching staff. I think the Mariners have a better bullpen. Obviously, you have the Astros sitting there looming. Even if they don't get Garrett Cole, you know they're still better than the Mariners. And then even the Rangers have a decent team. So it's it, to get there. Uh, I think I saw in Fangraphs uh, Dave Cameron written about that, where it's like 88 wins to 90 wins. You know, 85 wins isn't going to get you the second wild card anymore. It just doesn't seem that way, given the talent and how top heavy the AL is. I don't know what they sell off is kind of the problem. If the Mariners wanted to kind of go in that what direction, like I guess maybe at midseason, if they're they're 20 games out or 10 games out, and they decide, look, we're gonna gonna make some moves. Obviously, they would probably try and trade Nelson Cruz. In the final year of his deal, he's been their best, probably their best overall hitter for the last few years, and their unquestioned team leader at least the last year or two. But you know, I don't know how much value you get from Nelson Cruz in a half year because um, he's he's limited to DH. He can't really play the outfield. And then you look at guys like Cano and Felix; they're they're untradeable. They're just with their contracts and how much they're owed, uh, and given like Felix's downward trend. You know the Mariners would have to eat a, eat a huge amount of money to even think about doing that. Kyle Seager is one guy that might have some some potential to be traded. I mean, he's just starting to get expensive though. This year he makes about nineteen million uh, for the next few, so that that would be different. And I guess if you looked at their bullpen pieces, David Phelps, who's going to be a uh, free agent in the off season. You know, if you get to that point where you're looking to sell pieces, a right-handed arm that's that's pretty effective and can work multiple innings, you know, you could generate something from there. Even Mark Sepchinski, who's in the final year of his deal, a, a lefty specialist, you know, you'd pick up something for that. Would would they get in return any be anything great? Probably not. And I think that's, you know, although with the Mariners' farm system, that still might be an upgrade, even the minor prospects that you would get back. But that's kind of how they would do it. I mean, their their best players right now are, are kind of their younger, cheaper players, James Paxton, Mike Zanino. I mean, obviously you have Gene Segura, but he was just signed to a contract extension. Um, Mitch Hanniger and Rayfield, Ben Gamble, they're all kind of younger kids that are cheap, so you kind of want to keep those guys around in terms of being a foundation-level type of help kind of – build that process as you get younger and and try and transition from the core group that they have. The Mariners' top prospect is Kyle Lewis. He's a center fielder. He ripped up his leg last year. He did return later in the year, but do you think that leg injury will force him out of center field? I do. I think it will because, you know, he had the 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 injury and then he spent like, you know, 14 months recovering you know, rehabbing it. And then last year he never, he had issues with it. I mean, this is kind of how cursed the Mariners are. The kid heard it, uh, sliding into home and blew it up. He, he did all the, rec- um, rehab and recovery. It was very diligent. He moved to Arizona next to the, the Mariners facility there just so he could kind of focus on that. And in the very first game he came back and played, he slammed into the wall and slammed that surgically repaired knee into the wall and just kind of aggravated it. And so it was never the same last year. It forced him out of the fall league because he just he would play two games or he'd play a couple games and then the knee would get tired or it would get swollen. I, I just think, you know, it's a young age to start having recurrent knee issues. Now they say he's fully healthy and ready to go for spring training, but they're going to slow play him. They're not inviting him to big league camp. They don't want him to push it. He's going to probably spend most of the year in high A and then maybe double A. So I, I just, you know, I don't think that you can take a kid that's had that much wear and tear on a joint already and, and expose him to the kind of the, the, 
difficulties of playing center field that maybe you put him in a corner outfield spot to protect him a little bit and and hope that kind of reduces the wear and tear and there were even some talk that maybe he wasn't a true center fielder when they drafted him that eventually he would move to the corner because he wasn't quite as fast and and had the greatest jumps as some of the more elite defensive center fielders as we transition into the Hall of Fame, I want to ask you a little bit about Edgar Martinez. Martinez is the hitting coach for the Mariners. I'm curious how the position players on the team have responded to him and how his hitting has translated to the Mariners. It was funny. I think Kyle Seeger had got some milestone double with the franchise, and we kind of mentioned, he mentioned, yeah, he says, I only have about a thousand more to catch the hitting coach. You know, I was just kind of joking around. And I think Edgar's resume speaks for itself. When you walk in, I mean, when the players pull up into the stadium and they have to drive down Edgar Martinez way and, you know, they just retired his number and they know, you know, they know the stats and they know the, um, you know, the highlights and everything pregame. They got Edgar on there. I, I think they understand and respect this guy. And he's really kind of a uh, hitting savant. Like he sees things that other, you know, typical players don't see or typical coaches. He he thinks about it differently. Uh, and because he was never the most talented guy in the world, uh, he had to, you know, I think build himself in that. I think players respect that. And it's funny, sometimes he'll get out and take some swings in BP, and he still launches balls over the fence and just sprays baseballs everywhere. And, you know, 50-some years old, I think the players just look at him like, okay, yeah, we get it. This guy is really good. So he's really good at preparing and understanding hitters or and pitchers and breaking down pitchers and what they're trying to do to hitters. And I think a lot of the guys like that. And for somebody like Cano and Cruz and some of the bigger personalities, you, you have a guy with the same kind of cachet talking to them. So that that holds weight. I'm curious how a guy like Edgar, who is one of the great hitters of all time, uses some of the StatCast data or advanced analytics that might be passed down from the front office. He didn't have that, uh, or at least not as much of it, when he was playing. I'm curious if he uses any of that and how he approaches hitters with it. Yeah, I, I think he told me once that it, he could have he played another five years if he'd had all the information that they have. Because what he would do is write everything down into like a notebook. He would take notes after the, you know, what pitchers were doing. And he was all, you know, he was one of the first guys, you know, as a full-time DH to take advantage of all the things that they had. You know, he would go back and he'd set up this exercise bike in the film room and he'd ride the exercise bike and he'd go over the pitchers and his at-bats during the game. You know, he'd go back there and, and, and look at all that stuff. And so he does use a lot of that. I, he loves tendencies. He loves uh, pitchers, hot spots, locations, how they go, you know, looking at certain counts, two, two strike counts to right-handed hitters, what do they go with, uh, all that kind of stuff. He loves kind of the advanced numbers and that you can compile. Uh, I did. He did joke with me, though. He didn't know about all the shifting that was going on. They didn't use that quite as much, but – he really sprayed the ball around so much. I don't think he could have shifted him, but he does use a lot of that. He's got the, now they use iPads or whatever in the dugout or surfaces. He's got all that in there and uh, you see him going through it all. He loves that and the preparation too. Um, just kind of understanding, you know, at the touch of their fingers, they can go and get um, the last 50 times the guy threw a breaking ball and what the location was, you know, or in certain counts and where he wanted to go with it. And, I think he really likes that aspect. 
I know a lot of people in Seattle this year are excited about the possibility that Edgar's going to go into the Hall of Fame, and I do think it will happen, but I don't think it's going to happen this year. I do think he's going to have to wait till his last year on the ballot. He could help his own cause here if he was a little more self-promoting. He is not self-promoting, and that's actually no. hurting him a little bit here. If he went out and said, hey, look at my numbers compared to some other guys, people, people actually respond to that kind of thing, though I do think he's going to get in next year regardless. Yeah, I agree. I, I, he isn't. He's always been kind of reserved and quiet, uh, you know, and, and it's kind of what makes him likable. And I think that's why fans love him is because he is so kind of just he has a lot of everyman qualities about him. You know, he, he isn't the biggest, strongest guy in the world. You walk by him down the street, you don't gonna say, oh, my God, you know, that's that guy's a pro athlete. But um, and he you know, I think there is still some language barrier. I mean, he speaks perfectly fine English, but he doesn't love to talk. Uh, I'm trying to get him on our podcast, and that's, you know, there's some negotiating going on. Uh, the Mariners, I think because they know Edgar isn't that self-promoter, the Mariners have really made a push the last couple of years to, you know, flooding social media and all those things with that. I, 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 like you, think that he's going to come up just short this year, and next year we'll get in pretty easily, kind of similar to Tim Raines. Um, and, I, and I think he's deserving. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people – some of the old guard does not. They have uh, beliefs about designated hitters, which I find amusing because then they vote for a closer and Trevor Trevor Hoffman. I mean, it's an era of specialization, and and Edgar, you know, wasn't asked. They asked him to specialize, and he did it. I think if Edgar wanted to be a, a play first base, he could have figured out a way because he just was that kind of player that prepared himself so diligently. This is your first year as a voter. Tell me what went into your decisions and how you assembled your ballot. You know, having the cover as part of the beat covering Edgar and then before that Griffey uh, and their Hall of Fame cases. Um, so you're writing about, you know, the results each year and, you know, you still have to keep track of all that. So you're monitoring all the ballots as well. And, and by doing that, you know, like with last year with Edgar receiving a spike up in, in voting. You know, I kind of wrote some trend stuff about that. So you're going to look at why. And, and, and a lot of guys and writers are 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 offering their thoughts. So I, I read all that. So I had an idea, you know, you kind of make a mental ballot of your own each year, like, Oh yeah, well I would, I would do this if I had a vote. And then, um, you know, in this year as well, one of the last few years, having Larry stone, who's longtime baseball writer is now our columnist and he's a good friend of mine. You know, we've discussed it before kind of, you know, we're having beers or whatever. And we just kind of discuss the hall of fame and how you look at it and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then, with this year, I, I got Jay Jaffe on our podcast and talked to him extensively about Jaws, and I've read everything he did. So I, when I sat down, when I, when I knew that I was getting this, I sat down and I read everything I could and went and looked at all the numbers of the candidates and took notes on, on, a, on a notepad. I, I don't even know where it's at, a yellow, you know, yellow legal pad because uh, I still like having that kind of pen on paper. And, and weighed these things. And even then, you know, you, you get that ballot in front of you. And, and I, I think the first eight names were pretty easy, but then I sat there and, and, and reading about Scott Rowland and, and, you know, reading, you know, thinking about Kurt Schilling and all the things he said and all kind of the loathsome uh, qualities of his personally and all this stuff. And I went back and kind of read the rules on the hall of fame. I mean, I was, it was like a, when I finally decided to fill the ballot out and, and do all that, I was about a day and a half where I really just sat there and I agonized over like the last two spots, you know, Billy Wagner is the guy that's kind of on the, on the, 
on the edges and Scott Rowland and all this stuff. And, and so it was difficult in the end. I, I went with kind of what the popular ballot has been for a lot of people. Um, and I just remember it, like I fill it out, write it, you know, I, I'm in Montana during the time it's during Christmas and, and I put it in the envelope because only the BBWA still uses snail mail for all this and put it in there and, and send it. And I, my dad had bought a, a bottle of, of, uh, fancy, uh, it was like a age crown Royal, uh, to, for the occasion. So I sent it and then me and him sat down and we had a drink and we talked about it. And then he basically didn't like any of my picks. So it was, it was fun, but it was, you know, for people that say, uh, these guys don't, don't even think about it. They just do it. It was really torture for me. And, and I'm somebody who had been thinking about this for three or four years leading up to this. And even then when you have to put pen to paper and write it, and then they asked me to write a column explaining all of that, it was, it was not easy. And, and, you know, I second, I wouldn't say second guess myself, but you know, you, you were like, well, did I do this right? I mean, am I weighing this stat too much? I'm weighing that. And, at the end of the day, you get it and you get it done, and and you're. I guess I'm already thinking about next year and the possibilities. Well, this year you voted for Bonds, Clemens, Chipper, Tommy, Edgar, Vlad, Musina, Schilling, Walker, and Hoffman. I think that is the most popular ballot that we've seen collected this year. Tell me why you're a yes on Bonds and Clemens and the PED guys in general. I guess. Yeah, that's. I, I mean, you know, I. I remember reading the Joe Morgan email. I got that sent to me. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, it, it was part of an era. It was an era, a lot of my formative years of baseball when I was um, in co- a teenager and in college were the steroid era. And and it just it permeated so much throughout the game that I, I, I don't know um, who – you know, obviously you have your reasons why you believe Bonds and, and Clemens took steroids. Um, but – you don't know that other people haven't. There have been whispers about, obviously, whispers about Bagwell and and even Edgar Martinez by some outsider. So you don't you don't exactly know everybody that's done it. And with Sela getting in this year and, and how much he had just overlooked it, and I just kind of went by, look, do I? These guys are just next level players of a generation. Sure, this, the P, the performance enhancing drugs help them in some way, but. I think if you go back through the the Hall of Fame, there there are going to be others that got help too. I mean, people don't really uh, people kind of poo poo them, but greenies are um, greenies are not exactly uh, something to be overlooked because they are performance enhancing. Um, what like truth be told, when I was in college. Um, when you were dragging butt and you, we'd been on the road, you know, we're playing back-to-back double headers. We use, you know, we use Ritalin because it, it just kept you awake. You know, you just felt like you were sharp. And technically, I don't think that was legal by rules, but you know, they did it. So I, I'm not going to sit there and say that using greenies wasn't a factor. Those are performance enhancing, and and I guarantee you, there are many players, many established, you know, kind of Hall of Famers that are, you know, without you know, that had never been accused before that were on greenies. So I'm not going to sit there and say that bonds and, and that they're without reproach when, you know, and we can hold bonds and Clemens and those guys out. So, and then I think really with, with what Seeley getting it with Bud Seeley getting in, I just kind of said, look, if he's in, then I'm, I'm putting these, I'm going to vote these guys in. And it, you know, it was not popular. I, I probably had, you know, 
50 emails at least about them and, you know, uh, many older people calling and leaving voicemails and calling me an idiot. I was in various forms. I, I had one lady who had to be in her 80s. She dropped a few F-bombs on me in the voicemail. I, it was truly amazing. I want, I played it for my parents, and they were like, I can't believe she said that. I was like, oh, my goodness. It's a good feeling to have an 80-year-old lady yelling at F-bombs at you, I'm sure. I mean, I, I love your ballot. I, I would have had Roland in instead of Hoffman. Otherwise, I would have had the same, the other nine guys. I think that uh, the steroid guys belong. I think the Hall should acknowledge that they used. Bud Seeley going in, no one profited more from the steroid era more than Bud. That's oh, yeah. true. And then when they put in LaRue, and Tori as well, the managers who benefited most from their players using steroids. It's just, come on, give me a break here. Yeah, the game itself is is benefited from that because following the 94 strike, it, you know, the the if you remember, I'm sure you do, but like the, the Sosa-McGuire home run chase was like the biggest thing ever and, and it helped revive the game. I remember being totally, you know, just, just blown away by that season and, and I remember I was I was mad. I was in an airport. Um, we were playing at this national. So I was in an airport somewhere in Texas, and I missed seeing McGuire hit 62. And I was just bitter because I wanted to see it. You know, ESPN was cutting live to everything. I didn't see it. So I, I just, yeah, I think it'd be hypocritical for me to sit there and say, oh, these these PED guys don't deserve to get in. But then writing about Bud Selig getting in this year just doesn't make any sense to me. You've been listening to Ryan Divish. Ryan covers the Mariners for the Seattle Times and co-hosts the Extra Innings podcast with Larry Stone. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Ryan Divish. Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. No, it's fun. Thanks for having me on.